0: listeners, my name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. If someone asked me, what is the hardest decision that you made in your life? My answer would be the decision I made to marry my husband and to move to Arizona. The decision wasn't hard because of my husband, but because I had to start a whole new life in a completely different city on the other side of the country, It's hard to think about leaving behind the home you grew up in, parents and family you have lived next to for 35 years, and friends you have known ever since high school and college. I had a stable job and a home church that I attended every Sunday, where I sang for the choir and taught Sunday school to the children that I grew very close to. My life was very comfortable and stable. Then one day, I met my husband through family, friends, And one year later, my life became completely different. Never in my mind did I think that I would fall in love with a man who lived in Arizona. As I prayed to God, I asked him if I was making the right decision. I prayed for the strength to be able to move to a new city. I prayed to God that if his plan is for me to move to Arizona, then please give me the strength and wisdom to follow his will. And God kept answering me that it was time for me to be strong and have courage and that He would be with me always. That is why, till this day, my favorite verse is Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I think that my decision to give up everything in New Jersey and to move to Arizona is similar to how we as Christians surrender everything in our lives to God, having full trust in Him. Surrendering your life means to follow God's lead without knowing where He's sending you, waiting for God's timing without knowing when it will come, expecting a miracle without knowing how God will provide, and trusting God's purpose without understanding the circumstances. You know that you have surrendered to God when you rely on God to work things out instead of trying to control the situation. You just let go and let God work for you. You realize that you are no longer in charge and that your life is in God's hand now. We will continue our discussion of surrendering our lives to God after this hymn.
1: Oh, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the ten Good Father, it's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are. Hardly speak peace, so unexplainable. I, I can hardly think as you call me, deeper still, as you call me, deeper. Still.
0: ultimate example of self-surrender is jesus the night before his crucifixion jesus surrendered himself to god's plan he prayed in mark chapter 14 verse 36 father all things are possible for you remove this cup from me yet not what i will but what you will jesus felt distressed and troubled from what he would be facing and being in agony He prayed more earnestly. It says in Luke that Jesus prayed so earnestly that his sweat came down like blood drops to the ground. Luke chapter 22 verses 43 and 44 says, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus knew the pain that he would be facing. He knew in painstaking detail the events that were to follow soon after he was betrayed by one of his disciples. He prayed to God saying if it is in your best interest to remove the suffering, please do so. But if it fulfills your purpose, that's what I want too. Jesus surrendered himself to God's will. When Jesus was praying, the angels came down on him and gave him the strength and the will to go through with God's plan. Surrender is hard work. Just like how hard it was for me to leave everything behind that I knew and was comfortable with. When I moved to Arizona, I had to start over with my career, friendships, and even finding a new church. Because I was having such a hard time getting used to my new life, I began to doubt if I made the right decision. Then one day, when my parents came to visit, I was introduced to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries through their friends. As I began to volunteer at the ministry, meeting new friends and learning more about God, I began to realize that God had a purpose for sending me all the way to Arizona. Instead of living a hustle and bustle life, that I was living while working in New York City and living in New Jersey, God wanted me to use my talents to help spread the gospel. I have learned so much and became closer to God in the past seven months that I have been volunteering at the ministry. Through this experience, I have learned that God's plan may take us through hard times and it may be completely different from what we expected, but we must obey Him. God does not look upon trouble and hard times as we do. Where we see stress, He sees opportunities for us to surrender and submit to Him. Where we see crisis, He sees an opportunity for our spiritual growth and betterment. God's purpose during hard times is to teach His children precious lessons. The reason why we stress is because we are in conflict with God. We are trying to control things that only God can control. We must remember that we can't control our husbands, our wives, our kids, our job, our past, or even our future. The more we try to control our own lives instead of surrendering to God, the more we will be tired from losing that battle. Coming up next is Sermon by Pastor Timothy Killer of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Tale of Two Cities, Part 1, based on Genesis chapter 4, verses 10-26. through 26. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy.
2: In this series of sermons, we're trying to trace out the, the single storyline of the Bible. Each week we've started by saying, The Bible is not primarily a disconnected set of little stories, each with a moral, each with a lesson on how to live. Primarily, it's a single story telling us what's wrong with the human race, what God has done about it, and how history is going to turn out in the end. And we've started by looking at the beginning of the biblical story, what's wrong with us, the Bible continually tells us what's wrong with us here in Genesis 1-4, to and we're at the end of the section of Genesis, uh, and this particular part is c- neglected somewhat. It's not preached on a great deal. There's a couple reasons why. One of them is, is a question that the reader bedevils the reader, at least the modern Western reader. So here's Adam and Eve, and they have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, so there's this young man, he, Cain, who's run out into the world, and he says, oh, I'm afraid now the people will, av- will attack me. Who? And Cain lay with his wife. Where'd she come from? And he built a city, mm, populated by who? <laughs> you know? And if you take the text seriously and historically, like I do, and a lot of other people do, uh, there's actually all sorts of uh, possibilities. But here's what I think would be helpful as to help you be good readers of biblical narrative. Biblical narrative is incredibly selective and spare. If you uh, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, you're constantly surprised. Uh, having read Mark and a, maybe a, an event or an incident in Mark, when you get to Luke which will tell you about the same event. Luke will very often give you more details, and you'll see there was a lot more going on in that event than Mark told you about. Mark is very spare. And you'll say, well, why didn't Mark tell me there were another, was another angel there, or was this person was there, or somebody was coming with that? And the answer is, the reason why a biblical narrator, the writer, doesn't tell you all kinds of information that you sit there and want to know about is because it doesn't help him get his point across. So the point of Genesis 4 is to teach us some things. And if, he doesn't, if it doesn't tell us things that we want to know about, it's because it's not necessary in order to understand the point, the teaching, the truth. And so you just have to be a little bit willing to recognize that this, the point of reading this text is to learn what the Lord, who is the ultimate author of every part of the Bible, wants to tell you. And I don't know where... All these other people came from. However, here's what we do learn. Three very important things. They're rather broad, but they're extremely important. We learn here about the ruin of Cain, culture of death, and the future city of grace. Very important. The ruin of Cain, the culture of death, and the future city of grace. Now, let's start with the ruin of Cain. If you remember last week, when Cain kills his brother Abel... The first thing God says is, where is your brother Abel? Not that God doesn't know, but he asks Cain. And then Cain gives a very cold answer and says, how do I know? Am I my brother's keeper? Ooh, you know, am I his nursemaid? Why ask me? And now God comes back and says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. That's a strong statement. You would think when God says that your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, that the next thing he would do would be to smite him to the ground himself, to kill him, to take his blood. But as we see, God doesn't do that. He doesn't do it. God is doing absolutely everything he possibly can to give an opportunity for Cain to repent. That's the one thing I think we're supposed to get, one of the things we're supposed to get here. God is doing everything so that Cain can repent, giving him every bit of space, every opportunity. Why? Why? Martin Luther has a great definition of sin. His definition of sin in Latin was homo curvatus in se which means literally sin is man curved in upon himself. And what Luther means by that, and this is absolutely right, is the Bible defines sin as always focusing on yourself, always putting choosing yourself over God or others, always placing yourself in the center always. And what that means is, yes, of course you do bad things, but what's brilliant about that and cutting and penetrating about this definition is sin determines that even when you do good things, even when you help the poor, even when you enter into friendships, even when you uh, come to church and study the Bible and try to obey the Ten Commandments, it's always about you. You always relate to God. Sin determines that you relate to God and other people only in such a way, and only to the degree that it furthers your agenda, that things are going your way, that these people, God or other people that you're relating to, are doing things the way you think they should be done, as long as it gives you the self-image you want to have or you want to project. And as soon as it becomes something that's very costly, as soon as a relationship with God or other people is very costly, you're out of it. Why? Because even... When it looks like we're serving God and other people, we're actually serving ourselves. That's how insidious sin is. But repentance goes to the root of that. Repentance goes absolutely to the root of it. It means you get out of yourself, you take yourself out of the center. And you begin to get the favor of God and you begin to heal the blindness and the hardness and the pride that, 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 uh, that sin brings into your life. And therefore, there's nothing more important than repentance, nothing. But look what Cain does. Notice what he says? He says he's crying in a way. You see, He said to the Lord, he cries out, he's upset, he's sorrowful, maybe he's weeping, I don't know. But he says what? My punishment is more than I can bear. And here's the tragedy. There's a kind of sorrow. There's a kind of weeping, oh, I'm so sorry for what I've done, that is just as self-absorbed just as self-centered as the sin that you're crying about. Notice he is not saying, oh, what it cost you, O Lord, and your honor and glory. Oh, what it cost my brother Abel. Oh, I can't bear the thought of my brother laying there in his own blood. No, what he's saying is, I'm really upset about what's gonna happen to me. He is sorry for the consequences of the sin, not for the sin. He is obsessed with the cost to himself, not to God or other people. In other words, he's sorry for himself. He's not sorry for his sin. And there's a kind of sorrow, a kind of apparent repentance, a kind of weeping and weeping over what you've done wrong, which actually makes you more self-centered and self-absorbed than ever. Makes it worse. And therefore, since this this is the first point, we've got to move because these points are actually so broad and so important and yet, we go and we could talk about them forever, but here's what this means: If repentance is at the bottom of the ruin of the human race, if repentance was so important that God was giving Cain every opportunity, and if repentance is something so easy to miss and think you're doing it when you're not, then you should do everything to foster the skill of repentance in your life. When people point a finger at you or come to you and say, "You've done this wrong," what is our first instinct? What's our first instinct? What are you talking you don't understand? What are you talking about? How dare you? You're the one to talk. (laughs) Instead, the first thing our heart should be saying is, maybe, maybe, maybe. If repentance is that important, that crucial, and that slippery and that difficult, we should be a community of people that help each other repent, that do it very, very quickly, that are quick to say, Well, here's what I can say I did wrong. At the heart of the ruin of the human race is the inability to repent. That's the first point. Second point, seems to go away, but we'll get back actually to that. The second point we learn about is that sin doesn't just ruin the individual life, it ruins the culture. It doesn't just ruin our individual little lives, it ruins human society and culture. What we see here in the descendants of Cain from verses 17 on to the bottom is extremely telling. On the one hand, we see that even though human beings are sinful, they're still in the image of God. You know why? They're creating culture. Let me scroll you back to Genesis 2, if you were here. Uh, When we were in Genesis 2, we saw that that we were made in the image of God. That means we reflect God. Well, who do we reflect? We're reflecting a creator God. And because we reflect a creator God, in whose image we're made, we ourselves are creative. And how does that work itself out? When God put Adam and Eve into the garden and said, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion, gardening is neither leaving the ground as it is, nor is it ruining it. Gardening is creatively rearranging the raw material of the ground so as to bring about produce, to produce things, uh, to uh, produce uh, food and, and and flowers and other kinds of plants that, that help human beings flourish and grow and live. And we said that's what culture is. Gardening is the kind of paradigm for what, what is culture. Culture making is this. You take the, the stuff, the raw material of the world, and you produce things for human life and flourishing. So when you take the raw material of sound and human experience, and you produce music and narrative, that's the arts. And when you take the raw material of the, of the physical world, you produce technology in the sciences, when you uh, take the raw material, of of biological raw material, and rearrange it for human flourishing, it's medicine and other things. And even though Cain and his descendants are twisted by sin, they're still producing culture. So you'd have down here animal husbandry in in verse 20, and you have harp and flute, we have music in verse 21, and we have technology, tools, bronze and iron in, in 22. So they're producing culture. But This culture is now a culture of death. See, originally when God put Adam and Eve in the garden and he said be fruitful and multiply and have dominion, what he was actually saying was, I want you to rearrange things. I want you to create a culture that supports life by producing products that serve people. I want uh, life through service. That's the meaning of culture, but look what we have here. First of all, we have a culture of oppression and secondly, violence. Here's oppression. Verse 19, and Lamech married two women. Now, Genesis two twenty four tells us the original plan was for a man to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, not wives. That's Genesis two twenty four. So polygamy was not the design of marriage at all. But all through the rest of the Bible, pretty much all you have is polygamy. Now, Robert Alter, the great uh, Jewish uh, expert on biblical literature, says if you know how to read the book of Genesis you will know that one of the main subtexts of the book of Genesis, if you read all through the stories from here down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, etc., one of the main subtexts and therefore one of the main points of the book of Genesis is that polygamy is an absolute disaster. If you don't see that from reading the book of Genesis, Robert Alter says, you just don't know how to read a text. It is a disaster for everybody involved, but especially for the women who by definition are disempowered. They're oppressed. And what we have is, we have cultural forms that now lead to oppression. But that's not all. Down here, and Lamech said to his wives, Listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my voice. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Oh, my word, look at this. First of all, the word wound and injured is the word for bruise. Just bruise. Scratch and the word for young man is actually best translated lad, it means a boy or at best an adolescent. And Lamech is boasting that if even a kid scratches or bruises him, he'll take his head off literally. And when he says, if Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech 70 times seven, seven was a symbolic number of perfection and therefore to say, I will be avenged 77 times, seven times seventy, or seventy-seven times, depending on how you translate it. It's actually hard to translate. What Lamech is trying to say is, I will never give up revenge. I will never lay aside my anger. I will never, ever, ever forgive anybody for ever wronging me. And he's boasting about it, and he's proud. Look at the violence and look at the pride. And what this this is not my life to serve you, which is the whole idea behind gardening but your life, see, to serve me. It's amazing, and it's violent. And what you have here is that the human culture is twisted by sin. You no longer have got a culture based on life through service, but on power and exploitation. Now, the other thing we see, and this is very important to recognize, is that the culture flows out of the city. The very, very first time that the word city is used anywhere in the Bible, and therefore the first time it's actually mentioned in history, is in verse 17. Cain lay with his wife. He began to produce progeny. And then Cain was building a city. Building a city. Now, the word city, this Hebrew word city, does not mean a place filled with lots and lots of people. When you and I think of city versus town or village, we think of numbers. But the word city meant a fortified settlement. And it's extremely important to understand that culture begins to develop. The first time the Bible talks about human culture, the first time the human culture begins to develop, and that's the the thing that God told Adam and Eve to do is build, you know, develop culture, civilization. The first time it develops is after a city is built. And Henry Blochet, the French scholar, French Christian scholar says this, it is no doubt significant that in Genesis 4, Progress in the arts and engineering comes from the city of the Cainites. Nevertheless, we are not to conclude from this that civilization as such is the fruit of sin. Such a conclusion would lead us to the views of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The Bible condemns neither the city, for it concludes all history with the vision of the city of God, nor art and engineering.
3: Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries awaits for your participation in the listener's survey. Your opinion is highly valued. All gathered information will be for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries. You may participate by completing the questionnaire survey delivered to your address or online at www.heartandsoul.org. Our return address for the paper survey is P.O. Box four. Five nine, Glendale, Arizona, 85312. This survey ends October 31st. We await for your participation and thank you for your input.
0: Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount.
3: Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we spent time discussing the first blessing in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. I believe that this past week has been a week of seeking God with humble and broken hearts for many of us. Today, we'll take a look at the second of eight blessings of the Beatitudes. I'll begin by reading Matthew chapter 5 verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It sounds ironic that those who mourn are blessed. How is crying sadly a blessing? There are about nine words in the Bible that describe tears or sadness. Out of those nine terms, to mourn is said to express the deepest sadness. So usually the Bible uses this term when someone cries out loud after someone you love passes away. But what should we mourn about? To mourn in this context means to feel the sadness, pain, and to reflect deeply about the sin we commit. In other words, mourning is the befitting attitude of our sin. It is saying that we shouldn't laugh over or become numb and insensitive to our sin, but we should cry over it and mourn about our sin instead. James chapter 4 verses 8 through 10 says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Through this message, the Bible is warning those who are double-minded to mourn and reflect. Perhaps this message might not move your heart right away. Maybe it's because we think, well, some people might be numb about their sin, but who would actually laugh about it or enjoy sin? However, if we take a closer look at our generation, we would know that this Bible verse in James is not unreasonable. Since this generation we are now living in laughs about sinning and enjoys it, people commit all kinds of sin which the Bible indicates is wrong, and they do so freely and without shame. They even say that it's right to sin. They say as long as we don't harm others, it's all right to live however you want. And this is the way to protect human rights. We can say that it's a generation without grief over sin. Are you mourning over the sin of this world? Would you think that since you confessed and repented of your sin, it's okay not to care about the sin of others and the sin of this world? In Psalms chapter 119, verse 136, the writer confesses, My eyes shed streams of tears because they do not keep your law. Also, Ezekiel 9, 4 says that God will save those men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst from judgment. Luke chapter 19, verse 41 shows Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem that was full of sin that denied Jesus. Also, Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 says, "...for many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ." And Paul cried and grieved over the sin of others. In this way, why did Jesus say that those who mourn, not only for their own sin, but also for others and for the world, that they would be blessed? It's because they will be comforted. They will receive comfort through God's priceless forgiveness. As it is said in Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2, Jesus binds up the brokenhearted and comforts all who mourn. He is our only comforter. Our Christ's comfort among those who mourn will be complete on the day of glory. Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Amen. Through non-believers' eyes, we might look pitiful and foolish for seeking God's comfort and grieving over sin, since they think everyone gets to live once and that's barely enough time to enjoy. They don't realize that God's judgment day awaits at the end of this life on earth. They want to either not know or accept the fact that our destiny is to be judged with eternal death because of our sin. For those in this wretched life, Jesus comes as a light, proclaiming the gospel of heaven, and speaks about the blessings upon the people belonging to heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, as stated in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Have you ever felt sad after hearing an unfortunate story? Or have you ever cried watching a sad movie? I believe most of us have experienced a catharsis in which we released suppressed emotions through crying. However, that is different from what Jesus talks about as crying out loud. Feeling sad or being in agony over our sins means a sincere repentance that enables us to change our heart in action. As we read the Bible... Once we understand how much God hates sin, we would no longer be able to laugh over it. Every time we realize our sinful nature, we should grieve and repent in the presence of God. But God says he would not despise this kind of heart. In Psalms chapter 51, verse 17, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is the kind of sacrifice God wants. It is acknowledging that our hearts are broken and we need to come to him with a contrite heart in need of repentance. Are you bringing God your broken heart and grief of sin? That is what Jesus wants and he promises that those who do will be comforted. Today we looked at Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, and learn about the second blessing in the Beatitudes. Next time we will look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. I pray that we remember God's words that say he will exalt those who humble themselves and that we experience God's comfort when we mourn and repent of our sin. This concludes today's episode of the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for listening. And God bless.
0: of our lives and surrendering to him means we set aside our own plans and eagerly seek his the good news is that God's plan for us is always in our best interest unlike our own plans that often lead to our destruction Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 through 11 says for my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways declares the Lord For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God tells us that His plan for us and what He thinks is different from our thoughts and our plans. But God's plans are always best even if we don't understand it at the time. We know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love Him and obey Him. He will guide us continually, giving us the strength when we need it. We need to know that God's plan is not always the easiest to follow but it always works out to be the right decision. That is why we must surrender our lives to God and submit to Him and follow His plans. God has our future in mind in heaven. God knows all the plans that He has for us, and He is patiently waiting for us to come and surrender to Him. God is telling us to trust Him, that He has everything under control. Even though your situation doesn't look good right now, He knows what He is doing and what He has planned for you. God has our best interests in mind. God has a plan for us to live in heaven that goes beyond this world when you are a believer of Jesus Christ. Your real home is in heaven where you will be living in eternity with God. God's plan is for us to have a relationship with Him in heaven forever. What a wonderful future to look forward to. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I pray that all of us can truly surrender all of our lives to God, allowing Him to direct our lives according to His plan. I hope that all of you have a blessed week, and God bless.